Hi, I'm Rob. And I'm Mark. Forget Finland and hello Kazakhstan. It's Berlin 1945 all over again as your hosts don masks and head for the bunker as COVID-19 runs rampant. In this latest episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast, Mark and I delve into alternate universes to discuss the what-if decisions that could have been made about our favourite show. And let's face it, a reality where the Nazis win can't be any worse than the reality we currently face because, frankly, this one blows goats big time. Greatest country in the world All other countries are run by little girls Kazakhstan number one It's water of the Tassian Other countries have inferior potassium That's right, people. The boys from Happy Finish are back. Basically, we've gone back into lockdown for another six weeks. First wave was working for a little bit. Then we had a bit of a, um, what would you call it? Well, some would call it a misstep. Put this way, there's some uh, incidents that happened along the way. And as a result, uh, our COVID rates uh, dramatically escalated. So we are now back in lockdown again, which means that we can only go out for an hour a day. Curfew at a clock. Goose-stepping around the empty shopping centres of Melbourne. What else are you doing, Rob? It's crazy times, isn't it? Well, perversely, I'm working more than what I was pre-COVID because the, the, the sector that I work for is flat out uh, assisting the community. So uh, I, get, I start work at eight and have been finishing at 10 in the evening. Um, so I don't get to see much except this goddamn room with the helicopter hanging from the ceiling. So um, yeah, no, it's, uh, we live in strange times and my, uh, our sympathies uh, go out to everyone in, certainly in metropolitan Melbourne, uh, who is, you know, either or stuck at home uh, wondering where the, you know their next paycheck is going to come from, uh, or and even in uh, regional Victoria where uh, I've got family who are not quite in stage four, but look, looking down the barrel of it if they don't uh, manage to control it. So uh, it's a difficult time. I've got work. My wife has got work. So we're lucky in that regard. But there are you know many hundreds of thousands in Victoria who are definitely suffering and will continue to suffer as this uh, this whole thing unwinds. So. Hopefully we can bring you a bit of levity and uh, entertainment in the next hour, hour and a half. I mean, how have you been coping with it, Mark? You sort of go for the seven stages of grief with it, really, don't you? You had a bit of taste of freedom and we went out for you know, a couple of meals and whatever and caught up with friends and then sort of locked down again. I've been lucky. I've, I've actually managed to get new employment. Very good. So I've had to learn the job from home. We have good days and bad days. The kids are finding the the online schooling a bit of a challenge. They're socialising at the moment. is basically my son screaming at his mates and PlayStation games. And my daughter watching uh, Netflix movies with her friends online. So selling some of my Doctor Who merchandise again. Oh, yes. How's that going? Are they buying greedily? Some of the DVDs, the steelbook cases are going quite nicely and some of the figures. Should I have invested in steelbook cases several years ago? I think so. <laughs> so everybody's using their JobKeeper to good use, I think, at the moment. <laughs> and and what have you been doing, uh, you know, entertainment-wise? You've been watching Doctor Who, Mark? Let's drag it back on topic. No, I haven't. I haven't touched it at all. Really? That's what she said as well. Boom, boom. No, I've been watching a show on Netflix called The Dark. Oh, that German one? Yeah, it's, it's like Stranger Things meets Back to the Future. This is the one with... Uh, 
It doesn't have subtitles. It's been dubbed, hasn't it? It's been dubbed, yeah. yeah. And you, once you sort of get over the sort of crazy dubbing... I can't abide dubbing. I, this is why I've never watched it, unfortunately. Once you sort of get past it, it's very, very good. It's sort of... Um, it's the first uh, show in a while where you go... I've got to watch the next episode, at least the first 10 minutes of the uh, next episode. Mm. So I've been watching that to try and bring some uh, bit of levity into the household. I've been uh, digging up the old 80s comedy movie so for the kids to endure. So we've been working our way through um, the Police Academy series. We're up to... <laughs> we, just, we just finished Police Academy 2 at the moment. How'd you get past Police Academy 1 with the nudity mark on the beach? You know what? I completely <laughs> forgot about it. And like... I saw that film and it came out and you've seen it subsequent times and they haven't touched it for 20 odd years all of a sudden it's like oh my god <laughs> there's full frontal female nudity at one point <laughs> kids these days have got access to everything so they said nothing uh, it was a different time Mark. happier times and places watch Dodgeball of course Ferris Bueller's Day Off they didn't particularly like that outrageous outrageous National Lampoon's Vacation we watched uh, the first one and European Vacation that's got full frontal nudity as well completely forgot about it uh, yeah. that's Beverly D'Angelo in her prime as well Christy Brinkley as well she's uh, not wearing much either I'm detecting a trend here, Mark. What's going on? How free and liberal is your household? That's what I want to know. And well, it's very free and liberal for a lockdown household, put it that way. What's been on your uh, entertainment platter? As I said, my wife went into, uh, started working from home before me, and then I, I, I lingered at work for another a month, and then as soon as they were able to release me home, I came home. So I've been working from home like a whirling dervish. On the personal level, my hair is now the longest it's been <laughs> since the mid Oh, God, mid-90s, I think, if not before that. Because I rocked I rocked a goddamn decent mallet back in the early 90s when I was at university. And uh, it's getting there now, Mark, because I haven't had a haircut since the beginning of the year, I think. I think it's at the beginning of time. With all the uh, overtime, and I've, I too have been... Because when we moved, uh, I moved the equivalent of 150 boxes of books. And as I stacked them up in shelves, uh, bought some shelves from Bunnings, I thought, this, this, can't, this can't go on more than halfway through my existence on earth and I'm not taking these with me when I depart. So mm. it's time to sell. So I've been loading stuff on eBay uh, and selling reasonably well and then I've been converting them into more books but it's it, the net effect is I've actually got less than what I started with. I have picked up Doctor Who wise uh, the two uh, Rob Shearman and Toby Haydock are running through Corridors volumes. Yes. I mean, I wasn't fussed about the, the, uh, the, the quality uh, in terms of Books. I mean, I bought them cheap is what I'm trying to say, so they're a bit knocked about. But they're very good. Uh, I also picked up a copy of... Uh, it's Jeremy Bentham's uh, The Early Years. The oh, hardcover. yes, lovely. Now, I missed this the first time it came out, and I, there's a, there's, as I mentioned on Twitter, there was a uh, second-hand bookstore in central Victoria here in Bendigo, which I saw it one day, and I thought, ooh, I might pick that up, and then I decided not to. I couldn't couldn't bring myself to part with the 20 bucks. In the end, I've spent probably 30 or 40 to buy this. But I've got it, and it's on the floor. But I've, I've picked up uh, some DVDs. I've put the reanimator, the horror, the classic horror from the 80s on Blu-ray. Mm-hmm. And I've got the season 14 Blu-ray box set, which I'm oh, yes. you know, very happy about. There's a whole, there's a couple of political books here. There's one book on the history of the Crusades, a couple of horror novels. Uh, there's a biography here of Lyndon Baines Johnson I want to read. I found my box set of The Sopranos. So uh, locked and loaded, you know, when I've actually got a couple of minutes. But my wife and I have also been watching uh, Succession. Oh, yes. That is... Hands down, one of the best things I've seen in the last couple of years. I, I suppose, in a sense, it's it's based on the Murdochs, in, in a way, Australia's own Murdochs. I was watching with my wife, and you know, it's 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 very well acted. The fellow who plays uh, Kendall, the eldest son, he's he's amazing in the role. 
But I was sitting there thinking, this is a comedy because all these people are terrible human beings doing terrible things to one another and you can only sit back and laugh. But we were really impressed with it. And I have um, dug up my copies of uh, the box sets for NYPD Blue from the 90s. Currently powering through season three of uh, NYPD Blue and it, it's as powerful and raw and entertaining as it is uh, as it was then as it is today. I, I'm really enjoying it. So, so a bit of reading, a bit of television watching and a whole lot of work for me, Mark. And uh, just watching the the daily COVID rates uh, with a bit of uh, morbid curiosity. It's like uh, rubbernecking in a car accident, isn't it, really? We both lived through the 1990s recessions and I saw my father, uh, hair go white over the, you know, the, the couple of years that that sort of ruined ruins people's lives. And uh, there are a lot of Australians now who don't know what a recession is and they're currently experiencing it. And it's, uh, it's, it's utterly awful. And uh, it's not pretty. No. It's not pretty at all. So I'm, I, my, you know, I'm, Really, really glad that I've got the job that I do. Uh, I'm, I'm lucky in that regard, and uh, I'm hoping all the people out there, as I said before, uh, are doing as best as they can in a really tough situation. And uh, there is light at the end of the tunnel eventually, is all I can say. Uh, but, you know, just hang tight and uh, stick with uh, those people who mean the most to you. So, yeah, as we all try and get through this situation. Actually, I have been watching a couple of things on YouTube because um, something on Twitter comes along and it might uh, spark your interest. So I watched a panel a couple of weeks ago who were... Um, the participants were certainly not happy about the uh, the current direction of Doctor Who, and a certain Liverpudlian also joined in the conversation as well. Oh yes, one Philip Morris, I understand. Yeah, he uh, sort of gave us his views on the, on the current series, are uh, which are not very flattering, well, especially compared to some of his tweets. But um, a lot of these people getting certainly very wound up about the current direction of the series. You know what? If if they were being wound up about, say, perhaps their government's uh, handling of the COVID nineteen crisis. Or, or something else that was actually important. So if I'm going to listen to a bunch of, uh, you know, white people ranting on about the current state of Doctor Who. I'm, I'm clearly I've got better things to do. I mean, to be honest, I didn't listen to it. I saw Phil's head pop up, and uh, and that was about it. And I, I moved on. I'd... With regards to Philip Morris, if he's not talking about missing episodes of Doctor Who, I have absolutely no interest in what he's got to say. Absolutely no interest. The man only exists to find episodes of missing Doctor Who. That's it. That's it. So if he's got things to say about uh, you know, uh, complaints about the current state of Doctor Who. Fair play that you're entitled to your opinion. I just don't care for it. I want to find out from you, Phil, what you've done with regards to missing episodes of Doctor Who. That's it. Now, I've had obviously extra time to think about things and, and my Doctor Who social justice warrior jokes have gone down a treat over the last couple of episodes. I thought I'd sort of shift <laughs> the direction from that sort of topic onto some Phil jokes. Would you like to hear what I've made up? I'm going to ask, Mark, is this going to be a regular feature of episodes going forward? So just so everyone can prepare themselves? Stay tuned. <laughs> okay, are you ready? Uh, born ready, mate. Born ready. What's Phil's favourite chocolate biscuit? Uh, what is Phil's favourite chocolate biscuit, mate? A Wigan wheel. <laughs> well, I'm only laughing because it's expected of me. <laughs> Bit of awkward silence ever I kicked in. I'll keep going, though. Please do, Mark. Please do. What's Phil's uh, favourite incense? What is Phil's favourite incense, Mark? A joystick. That's quite clever. I like that. It's not very funny, Thank but you. it's quite clever. So, <laughs> Look, it's a play on words, so let's just keep going. What's Phil's favourite dance routine? Uh, go on. The can-can. <laughs> the 16mm can-can, Mark. <laughs> You liked that one, didn't you? Only because I added to it and improved it, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing like two middle-aged white men laughing at their own jokes, okay? <laughs> See, this is what we're resorting to at the moment. God, oh, Marty. <sighs> 
Lockdown mania. Yeah, six weeks to go, Rob. Come on, we can do it. <laughs> what electronic dance track from 1990 does uh, Phil consider to be his personal anthem? Jesus, how deep cuts are these, Mark? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Tell me. I've got the power of the Daleks. <laughs> Let's round this out, Rob, with what's Phil's favourite continent to visit? Uh, rapidly runs through the seven that currently exist. No, I don't know, Mark. Tell me. <laughs> I like that song. That's quite nice. Remember, the offer's still there. When uh, episodes get handed over, we're going to do it karaoke style to celebrate a return of something. And as I've been tweeting at Phil, uh, and he's been, you know, studiously avoiding or ignoring it, welcome to come on at any time, Phil, and have a have a good old chat about what you've been doing with regards to missing episodes since 2005. I'm sure you've got a lot to say, and we're the perfect forum for it, mate. So get in touch, 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com or, you know, at 42 to Doomsday on Twitter, where our ears are open. So what we asked our loyal listeners to do, Mark, is to nominate or suggest their favourite ideas in terms of a what-if scenario. What if, say, William Hartnell had stayed on for a fourth year? Or what if J&T had never been chosen as producer? Those sort of things. So it's, it's a what-if scenario, alternate universe, reality, that sort of thing. So that's, that's what we asked our, uh, our listeners to do, to put forward their suggestions. We were surprised and delighted to be inundated with listener responses. They're quite a lot, actually. We've got so much material that we can probably pepper these through the year and next year as well, either as dedicated casts or... Well, given our frequency, Mark, at the moment, there's about seven years' worth of material here. So. I was actually thinking 25. We should be out of the corona by then, I'm hoping. Maybe, we'll see. We'll see. Back to that YouTube panel show is that people have to pay to ask questions. What? Yeah, so basically they say oh, Chuck from Virginia for $5 wants to ask blah, 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 blah. What the hell is all that about? Is this a new business model by Patreon? If you want to ask a question, you have to pay. Is that is that how things are working now? I wasn't aware of that. That's that's terrible. I, I, don't, I don't agree with that at all. Donation thing. But anyways, it was very strange. Well, look, I mean, if it is, uh, if the money's been directed towards a charitable endeavour, well, I don't have a problem with that. But if it's going to... Uh, into the pockets of the organisers. I'm not. A, I'm not a big fan of that. Particularly if you're, you know, YouTube is effectively free, isn't it, to do what they're doing? I think so. But I was just really like taken aback. I thought, is this the next wave of trying to get some cash out of people? But look, there's one thing we can guarantee that on this podcast, we'd never, never do that. So, and the first suggestion, Mark, is from my old uh, UK tape swapping buddy, Pirate Pete Lambert, who says, "What if Ray Cusick had been off sick and someone else designed shit Daleks instead?" Interesting question, Mark. I think that um, if they had been the sort of the quintessential lumbering robots that you would have got in that era from, you know, the, the, the sort of the Hollywood movies or the Hollywood science fiction movies. I don't know that they would have made the, the impact that they, uh, that they did at that time. I think the uniqueness of the design, you know, the one eye stalk, uh, the way they glided around the, the, their surroundings, uh, gave them a visual appeal that a sort of, you know, a prototypical robot uh, like say from the you know the day the Earth stood still, or maybe even um, uh, the, was it the Fantastic Planet, the one with Robbie the Robot sort of thing. I can't I can't remember. Was it Forbidden Planet? The Forbidden Planet. That's all right. I, th- I think if you go with a normal looking you know humanoid shaped robot, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. But uh, I think with uh, the the Ray Cusick design was just you know it did just a, a a key moment in 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 the show's history and uh, that particular design worked but if they'd gone with something else i'm not 100 percent sure that the daleks would have had the impact that they that they did what do you think 
or the show wouldn't probably have lasted. The Dalek's success is really, it's 80% design and, and 20% Terry Nation's inspiration, but... Mm. Of course, Terry Nation's management swapped it around, didn't it? <laughs> Terry got the 80% and uh, for old Ray Cusick got nothing. You know, Ridley Scott was originally uh, scheduled to design the first Dalek story, and but he actually got sick and then Ray was put in it as his replacement. Oh, yeah. I don't know if Ridley Scott could have pulled off something that good anyway, but not without H.R. Geiger's help, which I don't think they were... Uh, in uh, in conversation by then um no, too early for that yeah and i was having a look at some of the designers around in the early 60s i mean barry newbury's i think forte was around the historicals mm. although i think he did a couple of sort of sci-fi ones later on speaking of doctor who the early years actually sort of dug up my copy and it went through some of the preliminary sketches that raymond yes. uh, Cusick put together and one of them actually does look very similar to a robbie the robot i think there was definitely an inspiration there from forbidden planet into the dalek design in terms of somebody else design and look i don't I think the show would have lasted and certainly i don't think it would have had the impact i think the fact that they he eschews the humanoid shape mm. means that they are immediately visually appealing they glide they've got the one eye stalk they've got no you know discernible human features that mm. is what makes them i think the arrest, arresting visual image that you know the, the kids in the playground could could imitate it, it wasn't just another robot it was something completely different and and alien like add to that the fact that that makes them quite scary which you know uh, i think young or kids find appealing in a sort of a perverse sense there's that pleasure in being safely scared that visual image sort of projects but again uh, i've said it a couple of times already but i think a more humanoid looking robotic shape wouldn't necessarily work i mean the cybermen work uh in a sense and, and they are that sort of humanoid robotic shape but i think by that stage the show become more conditioned to that sort of shape for a monster if the daleks are turned out like say the quarks oh no not a last and also the voices for the daleks as well yes i think it's it's a great mix of design voice and three uh, percent of terry nation's um input no he's all right uncle terry uncle terry's all right as i've come to learn more about missing episodes the the, the thing that i that i i can knock terry nation doing is that his desire to make as much money as possible meant that around the time of the Troughton era uh or even a little bit before that he he put the screws on the bbc uh in terms of selling uh dalek stories around the world um because he wanted to market them to america and you know he wanted to control the control the idea so that meant that there weren't as many sales of say well daleks master plan for one <laughs> power of the daleks evil of the daleks uh, which uh, and Troutons in general, in actual fact. So I'll, I'll knock Terry for that, you skin flint bastard. But anyway, <laughs> the dead can't sue, and neither can their estates. <laughs> but I'm sure his agent would definitely have a crack at us. <laughs> the next one was uh, M.R. Michael. He suggested that the uh, Hartnell replacement plan A happened, and he changed six months, six months earlier as a result of the Celestial Toy Maker. When the Doctor reappears at uh, one of the episodes, he's played by a completely new actor, springs up. I think that that has two streams of thought, Mark. If they if they pick Patrick Troughton, then it still works. I think it still works. There's probably a bit more... It's a bit more jarring than what happens at the end of the 10th Planet Part 4, where there, you know, Tra- uh, Hartnell is there and you can see him visually change into... into into Troughton. So that, I think that that, uh, where you've got, he, he vanishes and then he reappears. So he vanishes as Hartnell and reappears as Troughton. I think that will be much more confusing and jarring for the audience. But I think that they're, if they're prepared to watch a show filled with Daleks and Cybermen and time-travelling police boxes, I think they're prepared to, to live with something as jarring as that. I don't know if they would have actually gone, because John Wiles was, was in the chair by then. 
Um, so I don't know if Troughton was on the radar unless Sidney Newman uh, would have definitely been involved in the casting. So I have this awful feeling that they would have actually just recast the role but in the same style of Hartnell. So I think more of a Richard Herndall's type of impression as opposed to the uh, bastardization caricature that David Bradley did. The change would have been explained by something the toy maker did. So if the next actor wants to leave, they'd have to engage Michael Goback and say, oh, you're changing again, Doctor. You know, do something celestial toy maker-ish to make him change his appearance. But I think if... Uncle Terence had got in, uh, as in Terence Dix, that is, mm. uh, had got onto the show as well. I think we'd have sort of merged it somehow with the Time Lords and said, yes, he was one of us, and potentially even go down the, the Choji route later on where he sort of helps the Doctor change in certain circumstances because they can't get Michael Goff every every five or six years to turn up in the last 30 seconds. and Because when Michael Goff wants to be replaced, they'd have to get somebody in to change him. Yes. But that aside, you can think that if a, a, you know, a clever production team could make that appearance to be, you know, one of menace and foreboding. So just like, just for instance, take it that the uh, the Celestial Toymaker is a bit like the Watcher. So as the Doctor, you know, uh, mm. nears the end of his life, he begins to turn up. You might have a story where there's there's a familiar silhouette because, you know, the, the, the Toymaker dresses in a particular costume. Or there could be some sort of signifier of the Celestial Toymaker, perhaps a, a circus clown's face, or just something like that that, that gives it added menace. So... You could see how, if the show lasts long enough, that all right, the Celestial Toy Maker was responsible for the you know the William Hartnell Doctor exiting and then a new one coming along, uh, then that perhaps uh, allows a clever production teams to do something interesting and different each time. But then that then potentially changes the the, whole, the Doctor's whole background. I mean, is he is he an alien from a planet named Gallifrey? Is the whole process if the process is no longer an organic one? Um, and it's it's really down to the intervention of one 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 being, and it's it's you know otherwise is the Doctor effectively immortal until the Celestial Toy Maker turns up, and you know does that mean that the Doctor is from body to body exactly the same person, just slightly renewed? Uh, which on the one hand it's 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 a fascinating thing to to think about. On the other hand, I think story wise it's it's um it's limiting. I mean you wouldn't have the the, the grandeur of the the Davison Doctor. Uh, the fifth Doctor's departure or self-sacrifice if the Celestial Toymaker just, you know, rolls up on Andrazani uh, Minor and clicks his fingers and it's, it's, it's suddenly Colin Baker. Just walks over all the carnage. It's time to go. <laughs> Look, I'm sure Chris Chibnall's got a perfectly good explanation for this in the uh, Byless Children Part 2. <laughs> let it go, Mark, let it go. We'll be doing angry YouTube panels in a couple of weeks, I can guarantee it. Uh, fellow podcaster and friend of the podcast, Tim from the Missing Episodes podcast, I just want to just pause on that, Mark, and say that their latest episode uh, in terms of the Mythmakers, where they had uh, where Tim and Paul had Toby Haydock on, I think not only was that yeah. one of their their best episode they've done in their short run, but I think one of the mm. best episodes of a single podcast that I've listened to this year. It was fun. There was a real connection between all three participants, uh, and they had lots and lots to say about the episode that I'd never thought about before. You know, and then obviously the missing missing episode chat that came. Uh, came later, and they've left me hanging in terms of uh, Singapore. I'm looking forward to hearing more on their thoughts about how Singapore plays a, a part in uh, 
the bicycling chain of, uh, of missing episodes. But I digress. No, but actually, as a result of that, I'm going to go and uh, listen to the audio book of the Mythmakers because I haven't listened to that. A podcast like this, I-, I hope that people who are fans of the show but haven't, you know, there are the new series fans who, you know, don't know anything about, say, the Mythmakers. I hope this inspires people to go back and listen to the audios of either the target, you know, novelization readings or the audio of the of the, st- the surviving audio of the story them- themselves. If you don't have the visual element, they, they tend to... They tend to, you know, fall by the wayside. People just, you know, won't go back to them as much as an existing story. So uh, Tim and Paul and their guests are doing a really, really sterling service in terms of highlighting these stories, the sad fact that they're missing, the, the, the positives and the, and, and the negatives, admittedly, of, of some of the stories. So I think they're doing a really, really good work. It's fantastic to listen to. I agree. When it comes down on the feeds, I sort of jump on that. I sit with a cup of tea, having my wig and wheel. And, uh, yeah, it's a, gr- it's a great listen. And, and on that topic, Tim's question is, thank you very much in advance, Tim. Uh, Phil Morris hands over Power of the Daleks in 2013, and Rob needs to get all his business cards redone. <laughs> <laughs> What's he implying not, there, Rob? I don't know. percent sure. That's right, the man who has found more of uh, Power of the Daleks in the real universe than Uncle Phil. What, Mark, do you think uh, would have happened had Phil handed over Enemy, Web, and Power in 2013, which obviously posits that Phil had found Power somewhere? It was great getting Web and Enemy as well at that time, but to have Power uh, come back, that'd be like the, the icing on a very, very nice stack of film can cake. Wouldn't it really? Just to see Trout and his debut story, it'd be sublime, wouldn't it? It'd be unreal. It'd be an alternate universe thing, wouldn't it, Rob? It, it would. It would. I, I think. Uh, I think a universe in which Phil Morris has found Power of the Daleks and handed it back, that would be of incalculable benefit to fans of the show and historians of the show. I mean, it's one thing to have the tele snaps and the color photos and the audio, and the novelization, obviously. but And the animation now. And the upgraded animation now. It, but it's another thing to say it, you know, in front of you. Mm. Because as we discovered with uh, The Underwater Menace, Underwater Menaces are completely uh, underrated. Well, it's not underrated. It's not very rated at all, is it? But it's not. It's no. not. But I th- we all know that with... And this is why I've never really cottoned on to the animations, because... You cannot pick up the nuance of, of Troughton's performance simply by listening to the audio and extrapolating from that. What we saw in that episode of The Under, uh, Underwater Menace was a performance that elevated the material, the fairly mundane material, to a new level, to a new level. And Troughton's performance in that in that in just that single episode means that that episode was you know re-rated, uh, looked at again because mm-hmm. of the strength of that performance. I think if you get... Power of the Daleks handed back over, I think it's probably the best thing to happen to the show, uh, to the history of the show since the show came back, to be honest. Uh, it risks, having it back, I think, risks overshadowing the new series to a greater extent, I think, back then. I'm okay with that. Uh, yeah. I'm okay with it as well. But, I mean, if you, <laughs> yeah, I Mark, what would you think if you were able to, you know, t- turn on, uh, put in Power of the Daleks at any, any time that you wanted to and just glory in, in, in Troughton's uh, debut performance? How would you How would you feel? It's a bit like when you put on Web of Fear now or Enemy of the World now. You just sort of have to pinch yourself. And especially with Web of Fear, for example... Uh, you get to episode one in the old days with a stop, and now you can keep going. But just to have on your shelf and the the live action 
all lovingly restored and just having the you could watch it any time as opposed to 20 or 30 years it's just been a pipe dream so it would just be amazing I remember when Tomb was returned, you become really enraptured with, with missing episodes. I know I did in the 1990s, and you hang off sort of all the information that you can soak up about it, bicycling chains and, 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 and people recounting what it was like to watch those episodes when they were first broadcast. And then when, and you think, oh, you hope and pray that one day something turns up, or you can even have a small hand in doing so. But then when, you know, when Tomb rolled, you know, it was returned, and it was just, you know, fandom was ecstatic and... And uh, and the same thing happened, you know, when Phil returned Enemy and Web. Um, but I, as you said before, I think I think the fact that Power of the Daleks is is on a even higher plane than say Web in terms of its impact on the show, the, you know, Troughton's first performance, uh, the, the the depiction of the Daleks, I think in in a manner that we hadn't seen. Oh, we'd seen a little bit before, so sort of the calculating. But I think there was more of that in, in Power than we'd seen previously. Um, I just think it would have been absolutely fantastic. If Phil had found power, Mark, where do you think he might have found it? Where do, where, I mean, we only know of a limited number of places that it was screened, including Australia. Um, any idea where he might have found it? Is Singapore the place to be or Africa? I think potentially an African country. Obviously still stuff in private collectors' hands. Because episode six was tele-recorded on 35mm film, mm. and that was in the library. And that went walkies. And a couple of others, other 35mm prints went walkies as well. So it might be still out there. Sadly, that it, well, it's unlikely that Wolf, uh, Power would exist in all six episodes in a dusty uh, television library archive somewhere. I, you're probably right that at least one of the episodes is in the hands of possibly a collector, if it exists at all. At all. But uh, yeah, your, your story about the 35mm... Uh, episode six is uh, going walkies is uh, is tempting. It's a tantalising uh, prospect, isn't it? In an alternate universe, Rob, you found it. Complete. You can go back and find the particular episode of this podcast where I waxed lyrical about uh, my little part in finding those clips. So it's become the eye patch joke of the Forty Two to Tuesday podcast, hasn't it? Really? I turned around and in my hands with <laughs> clips of power. <laughs> Look, Phil, if you've got any more episodes of Doctor Who and you'd like to tell the world about it and return them to the BBC. Uh, I'm sure you can come to a nice arrangement with them. Just do it. If you've got them, do it. Why hang around, mate? Why hang around? If you, if, if you actually have anything. And if you don't have anything, tell us. No one will hate you for it. No. We'll appreciate your candidness. And if you do have something, Rob and I will definitely do the can-can. <laughs> we're going to sing Africa, aren't we? Well, don't know if he does. So. Well, we could do both, can't we? I mean, we're multi We can sing it. We can do the can-can. I saw the can-can at the Roulon Mouge once. It was fantastic. Yes. yes. All right, Mark, the next one. The next one's from uh, Gordon Demosky, who says, uh, what if Doctor Who was cancelled after season six, the final Troughton season? Mm. It would probably have the similar status as, say, Adam Adamant does or Out of the Unknown does. So there would be a, a, a DVD release sometime. The BFI would have done something in terms of uh, a box set containing all remaining three episodes <laughs> of the Highland <laughs> Troughton era by the time the BBC got through them. But I think... Um, it just be forgotten a little bit, but uh, then you sort of have to think about. Well, yes, it got cancelled, and then they replaced it. Say, for example, Barry Letts's work had that idea about that Australian in London predated Crocodile Dundee by you know at least uh, sixteen or years. Or Barry McKenzie. I think it was going to call it Adventures of Snowy White. Yeah. I think they would have done that for mm. a year, and nobody liked it. They tried a couple more things in that uh, time slot. Nothing really worked. So for the Doctor Who's tenth anniversary on the twentieth. Uh, 23rd of November, the show would have returned with uh, a 
brand new doctor, Ron Moody. <laughs> I reckon it would have been potentially rested for a couple of years and then brought back to life given that there was nothing else they could really, I suppose, think of to do in that time slot, unless they did Blake 7 later on. It was 25-minute episodes, but... You're right. It would be regarded as fondly as, say, Out of the Unknown or uh, maybe... Uh time slip or, or something mm. like that as a, as a curio from that particular era I think you're right, right to say, somewhat facetiously but right to say that uh, there would be far fewer episodes in existence because the only, I think the only reason that Sue Malden was really interested in, in, in sort of you know investigating Doctor Who's archival status was because the show was still ongoing. Uh, if it hadn't been, she would have gotten onto some other, uh, other series uh, as, as something yeah. Well, Z cars maybe, you know, with something that was, you know, modern, well, modern at that time in the late 70s. I think it would be largely forgotten uh, except by a hardcore of people. Uh, the, the return of missing episodes probably wouldn't have occurred because, uh, well, there's no Phil Morris for starters to go to Africa. Maybe Ian Levine, you know, being the big fan that he was from that era, may still have been interested in purchasing episodes, discovered that the archival status was pretty crap and still, you know, contacted places in Africa to get certain stories back, but there wouldn't have been any of the hoo-ha that uh, that eventuated in the 80s and 90s with the return of episodes. So uh, it would have just been, I think, a curio, uh, unfortunately. And even if they had those episodes back, you know, they wouldn't have repeated them. Um, they would have sold them maybe on VHS one or two, like they did with Doomwatch and Adam Adamant in the early 90s, you know, just one or two episodes on a tape to see how they go. After the show's 50th anniversary, for example, they just put a box set together of all the three episodes remaining, and that would have been it. John Pertwee would have carried on with radio comedy. Tom Baker would have still been working on a building site when he, until he dropped dead at the age of 65. Yeah. Davison would still have had the career that he did because yeah. he was, you know, he was a star uh, before he, he came to Doctor Who. I think everyone else who had a hand in the show you know, in, at least in front of camera, would have had a something of a career, but they, they certainly wouldn't have the cachet, the recognition, the recognition amongst mm. a subset of you know television fans that they yeah. do today. Interesting. Uh, Andy Taylor uh, via Facebook, boo hiss, boo hiss, uh, says, <laughs> uh, "What if Zoe had stayed on with Pertwee?" I think she would have been the same issue that they had with Liz Shaw. She was too clever by half, and she would have gone anyway end of the year, and hopefully, but they were the better exit. It, it would have been two smart people again and I don't think she would have fitted that gritty season seven tone at all yeah I think that's I think that's the main thing that she would have been completely a fish out of water in that particular in that setting in the in those four yeah. stories I, I don't th- I don't think she survives actually I think I think there's a certain childlike quality to Zoe uh that would not last the distance in in say a story like uh, spearhead from space. I, I can see her being chopped in the back of the by an auton and that's... Actually, I was going to say the third Doctor because, I mean, you know, Pert, we had a, a bit of a hand in Caroline John's sort of uh, removal in terms of, oh, I don't think this companion works well with my Doctor. So I think it would have been a similar a th- a yeah. similar sort of thing. But uh, look, if she did stay, you would hope that she would have got a better exit than uh, poor old uh, Liz Shaw got. Is there a way that Zoe does work in terms of the, the first Pertwee year? Do they harden the character? I mean, I can't see them even doing that. Can you imagine an uh, alternate universe infer no Zoe. Oh Jesus! Long as she wears that costume from the Mind Road, that'd be all right. <laughs> maybe Solarians, maybe. You can see her making a connection with the Solarians. Hmm. I mean, they're a, they're a, they're an advanced scientific race, and she comes from an advanced scientific civilization. So there's a chance there, I suppose, in that story, for her to be the moral center of the of the story itself, rather than you know uh, the Third Doctor being outraged at what the Brigadier does at the end. It's it's Zoe who. Who uh, who cracks it at him for you know blowing up the bunker effectively, um, and you could see her perhaps in 
uh, Ambassadors of Death, where she's you know seconded to that you know that that facility yeah. there to, to to assist with the the rocket launches and and that sort of thing. So in, in that way, yes, I mean she. But then again, she does. It's it's still the Liz Shaw thing where she's the smart mm. woman, uh, uh, probably you know, dis- discounted by all the men around her. Um, who, who, who is the who's you know the smartest person in the room except for yeah. the doctor? Would they have had to change Pertwee's character's performance? I mean, would would you lose some of the arrogance if you could get away with it, or uh, some of the the curtness that he has? Well, I suppose because they're supposed to be familiar with each other, he won't be as spiky. Oh, and yeah. I was just actually having a think about this. Spearhead probably won't work. Well, it will have to be set up in a different way because if say Zoe and the Doctor landed on Earth. That whole thing about the brigadier not believing who he is and everything like that, that would be not there because yes. obviously Zoe is there. Hey, brigadier, how are you again? Look what's happened to the doctor. He's grown two feet. That whole sort of initial setup would, for Spearhead would be changed. I mean, the story, the, the two episodes two and three would be exactly the same. I was just going to say, there's a risk that Zoe becomes Perry in a sense from going from a uh, a friendlier, low-key incarnation mm. to a much more strident, uh, as you said, spiky before performer like Colin Baker. There's a risk there that she sort of becomes a bit of a punching bag if, if they don't do something with Pertwee's performance. That, that's interesting. But I, I think she would definitely suit, you know, some of the more science-minded stories. Like, uh, I mean, she could even uh, turn up in, in Project Inferno uh, as much as she probably would in Ambassadors of Death, mm. you know, inserted into the facility to find out what's going on a little bit like a secret agent. So there may be that aspect to it. Yeah. But again, that would probably necessitate a real a, a change to her character. Uh, and then you go, well, is it really Zoe or is it someone else who's got Zoe's name? It's a bit hard. Zoe with a Y. And I don't, I, I can't imagine the Pertwee Doctor strangling her you know, in the first episode like Colin Baker did in Trindolina. So, uh, yeah, yes, yes. Uh, mm. You can imagine the sixth floor of the BBC coming down really hard on Barry that. Letts would not allow it. Yeah, bless him. No, there's no way that would have happened. But No, he wouldn't have done No, there's no way that happens, no. All right, what's the next one, Mark? Jeff Waddell uh, says, What if Pig Bin Josh had in fact been the Watcher and in fact had been the future Doctor all along? It makes some sense, especially when um was the Watcher. He'd be, instead of just being there silent, he'd just go, War or something like that. <laughs> and can you imagine the War Pig Bin Josh? <laughs> <laughs> coming soon from Happy Finish Productions. Look, it would have been interesting, uh, potentially very smelly, limiting in terms of his um, speeches. So it's basically ooar, ooar, and that's about it, really. So um, I don't think it would have worked particularly well. No, I, I can't add anything more to that. I'm just looking at some images. <laughs> I'm just looking at some images uh, on the internet now of Pigbin Josh, just to refresh my memory. Mm. And yeah, well, look, the costume is very is a great improvement on the sort of the pink. The pink uh, fairy costume that they lumbered the other uh, watcher with, but uh, l- less candy floss and more uh, from a rubbish tip. <laughs> Can you imagine that? Oh, look, it's Pig Bin Josh. He was a doctor all the time. <laughs> and he sort of walks towards Tom Bake and goes, oh, 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 and that's it, really. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> it's high Gallifreyan. <laughs> Friend of the podcast, Aaron Challenger writes, uh, make good on Tom Baker's quip. Now, Aaron uh, in an email said, Tom was famous for wishing luck to his successor, whoever he or she may be. Well, I don't think the world was ready for a JNT stunt casting of a female doctor, but what if they had done it with the master back then? The decaying master escapes in the chaos at the end of Keeper of Traken, but instead of possessing Tremess's body, imagine if he had possessed Cassia. Ooh, that is interesting, Mark. The lady who played Cassia was Sheila Ruskett, but maybe it would have also changed that whole casting, so maybe Joe Nathan Turner might have even got Kate O'Mara in early enough 
to actually play the the first female female master. Yeah, knowing JNT, you would have possibly thought that he would have got. Uh, I'm not saying that she wasn't a name actress, but a name yeah. actress that was possibly more familiar to 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 the audience. Maybe someone from you know the the film world. Uh, the UK film world, uh, to give it that, you know, sort of added impact. Much like the Rani works a few years later, I think more or less she works. Uh, I, I think a female master would work as well. You, you, I don't think you could afford to go as hammy as Anthony Anley eventually did. I think that would undercut the performance, much like I think it did with uh, with Missy uh, 25 years later. I think you could get away with it. I, th- I think... Um, you you would probably change the the, the 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 sort of stories that she would be involved in. I think you would make more of the fact that she was a female to uh, insinuate her into different settings other than you know some sort of pyramid in the middle of you know on a planet in the middle of nowhere like in Time Flight. Uh, I don't think you would necessarily do that. You probably play on the you know the disguise thing as as well. But I, I think it could work definitely. I don't think the eighties was you know a a, a a woke backwater <laughs> that it couldn't work. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it would. I think it would. I think it definitely would have worked, actually, if you got an actress, say, Helen Mirren, for example, or something like that, or even maybe Jill mm. Gascoigne, who was big back in the day as well. As long as it wasn't Beryl Reed, you should, have been, you should be okay. Davison's Doctor as well, I think that would work too. Mm. I think a female master would work against Davison's slightly softer portrayal, wouldn't against, say, Tom Baker or Colin Baker, because they would just completely overwhelm them. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, to, to sort of meet their... You know their their performances. You'd probably end up turning her into a shrieking harridan just to just to sort of match it. And I don't think that would work. I don't think the audience back then, and to a certain extent even now, is prepared to cop uh, a strong performance from a female uh, actor in that particular role. I think there's enough. I think people might might be turned off by it. Uh, there's, there's enough latent sexism, I think, in the viewing audience that a really strong performance from a woman would be jarring to them. I mean, I, I don't have a particular problem with it at all. Um, but I, I think back then they would have had to have made her uh, more sinister and less strident as Anthony only became later on. Here's an idea for you. Jackie Pierce, play it like Serverland. There you go. Serverland can, can come across as being quite reasonable, but there's always that underlying menace that, you know, yeah. she could order you shipped off to another planet <laughs> in a, de- a dead-end backwater uh, or basically shot dead. So, you know... Uh, there's that element to it, yes. I think when when the character's played understated, that's when it works. Like, you know, Derek Jacobi in Five Minutes of Utopia, where everything yes. else has just been pure five kilos of ham on a plate, really, hasn't it? And even the latest, what's his name, Darwin, it was just terrible. I just thought it was awful. More of the same. Mm. Although John Sim, I thought, was really understated. Played it quite well in the last two episodes of um, Capaldi's run. Or in some people's opinion, the last two episodes of Doctor Who ever made. <laughs> They're all gathered on a YouTube panel, mate, screaming at each other in furious agreement. Oh, I think that's just accepted my invite. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, don't forget to pay them so that you can appear, okay? I'll make sure I get our Patreon set up. Oliver Dallas suggested, what if Philip Hinchcliffe produced season 15? With Robert Holmes? It would make sense with Holmes to finish it off. Horror of Fang Rock and Image of the Fendale is exactly the same as what was broadcast, I think. Yep. Uh, There's a world in which the invisible enemy, you can scare it up. You can make it much more spooky. Salvage it. You can salvage it, basically. <laughs> I think that the, the Doctor's voyage through his own mind can be made really, you know, on, on the BBC budget, obviously, and a, so I suppose with inflation rampant, it was an increasingly limited BBC budget, but uh, you can you can do things to that that make it a, a much more scary, much more atmospheric journey. 
Uh, you can certainly do something with the with the giant prawn that makes it more menacing than what it eventually was. There, there was enough juice left in uh, Hinchcliffe and Holmes for them to turn season fifteen to something more more in keeping with their the previous three seasons. I think that they had also because it was their fourth season, they would have had a handle on you know the production side of things. So we don't get a situation where the invasion of time is punched out in a few days, uh, and you get something entirely different something entirely different uh, as a season ender. Yeah, I was actually thinking about Invisible Enemy, the only way to sort of salvage it was to make it darker, but get a director who wasn't so inexperienced, mm. like a David Maloney. What are the other What are the other stories in the, in the, in that season? Just remind me. Chunderworld? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, Underworld doesn't exist either. I think David Kitchen and myself will be very happy about that. I don't think anything could save that, really. Not even the magnetic Balka razor. <laughs> Some of the ideas that Philip Hinchcliffe had, if he did stay on, but I haven't listened to the big finish box set of Philip Philip, uh, I was going to say Philip Morris presents. <laughs> Philip Morris presents nothing, Mark. <laughs> well, not since 2013, anyway. Of any consequence. <laughs> so the big finished box set that uh, that Philip Hinchcliffe produced. Yeah, I haven't listened to it, but I think some of the stories are sort of more Indiana Jones type adventures. Look, I'm not too sure, but I think also another year of Holmes and um, Hinchcliffe would have been more of the same. You know what I mean? So, and I think leaving with their legacy intact mm. unlike a certain other producer mm. you know leave while you go on top is probably the best way to go opposed to you know keep going through the motions and producing stuff which um, might not you know might sort of dilute your legacy a bit so it is an interesting uh, proposal isn't it really of what it could have been my final point on that is what if they had done season 15 you know a few months before uh, the end they go to tom baker and say look we're going to be leaving we think you should do the same. We come in as a package, we leave as a package, and season 15 is Tom Baker's last season. I think Tom was too entrenched in the role then. I think even if they left, he would have said no. Yeah, he's staying and he was, you know, in his eyes, he was the star of the show, so I'm just going to stay anyway. Mm. But the only thing I was sort of thinking of is that while Holmes and Hinchcliffe are doing season 15 is that gives that new production team time to come in. So you could have Anthony Reid and Graham Williams come in and they've actually got time to prepare the Key to Time series, mm. ready to go, as it were. It's a bit more of a, 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 an organised transition as opposed to like, oh, you're leaving on a Friday, by the way, you're joining on a Monday sort of thing. So yeah. I think it would have been a cleaner break. I just got a question, Mark. I can't remember. When uh, Graham Williams came on board, he was given the sort of same lead-up time as, as Hinchcliffe was wasn't he so i mean was it just that scripts just fell through in season 15 which led to uh you know the invasion of time i mean i, I quite like the invasion of time it's it's got you know good bits and bad bits but i think overall it's it, it works but is was it just the fact that you know as as can happen the scripts kept on falling over i think some of the issues are obviously inflation i mean you know underworld shooting in a studio as opposed to going on location they didn't have the money for that definitely you had the obviously the vampire mutation which uh, supposedly in the slot Mm. to start off the season 15 so they've replaced it with horror fang rock and and thank god it did actually Sunmakers is in that season too but yes that's right yeah yeah i don't think Sunmakers is a story that hinchcliffe or holmes would have would have wanted to make necessarily no it does it doesn't fit with their first three years does it no it doesn't i think holmes got away with it because williams was there and because holmes has sort of stayed on an extra six months to help williams out so it's probably a bit of a oh thanks buddy you know you can write yeah. this before you go sort of thing season 15 is a, it's a curious beast where you got you know image of the fandal and, and horror fan rock as you said tonally they're completely the same as 
what's happened before. It's only when you start looking at um, Invisible Enemy and, and certainly the, the Chanda world, um, that's where it all sort of falls apart a bit. And Invasion of Time, that was a script issue as well. That was like six episodes of like Killer Cats of... Genghis Khan, wasn't it, or something? <laughs> was it Wembley Stadium full of killer cats? It's like, well, it's look, not going to work. It's you good know to have I mean? ambition, Mark, but then let's you've got to get you know be realistic about it. I'm surprised Big Finish haven't done that on the audio. It's like part of their Lost well, Stories collection, actually. I mean, season 15 is not mm. too bad as it stands. I mean, I love, apparently I love Horror of Fang Rock. I think Image of the Fendal is one of the scariest stories the show's ever produced. It's great. The Sunmakers mm. is, is, is an out-and-out satiric classic. Um, Underworld doesn't work for its production reasons. Uh, Invasion of Time, I think, overall does work. I remember watching it when I was a kid, and uh, I really enjoyed it. You know, that scene with, you know, the Doctor asking for the the, the, the key and Barissa producing it and all that sort of thing. I thought that was, you know, really compelling stuff. Uh, and the appearance of the Centaurans at the end of Episode 4, I think, is a really good use of the cliffhanger format. So I think overall it works. Uh uh, it's mm. just a pity that a couple of aspects of it, you know, don't, I, mean, I mean, and the Invisible Enemy is, is, is fond, fond, I have a fondness for it because, as I've said before, I bought the novelization the same week my brother was born. So, I mean, how can you not like it then in that instance? So, yeah. yeah. And look, they have improved it with a CGI option, you know, where you don't see the, the bits of polystyrene cut out before K9 shoots it. So, it is more palatable like that. <laughs> from the Crinoid podcast writes in hello Jim uh, what if Davros stayed dead after Genesis and never returned Ooh. well you don't get some of the f- better Big Finish audio plays you don't have Terry Malloy uh, in any of those audio plays which is, will be a, will be a great loss there's some really fine performances and really fine plays that he he stars as Davros in I personally love Revelation so without Davros does Revelation really work Probably. I think it would work, actually, without... Mm. Remembrance definitely works without him because yep. he's not really in it. He's, he's, he's yep. posing as a different character. Resurrection, I don't know, actually. That's, that's a hard one. Destiny probably wouldn't because you uh, needed Davros to help with the, the Mavellans and the, and the yeah. sort of pursuit of the logic. So um, I think some would have worked okay, would have, uh, would have been fine, but some definitely would have... Would, would, would have suffered and I think Big Finish would have, would have brought him back anyway even after one story well yes would you think that um, the fan memory of the character would be as strong uh, I mean it is a, it is a remarkable outstanding performance by Michael Wisher isn't it yeah but then you could say the same about uh, Kevin Stoney as Mavic Chen I mean he, he, he's apparently magnetic uh, in, 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 that epi- in that story uh, but again, that's f- almost 60 years ago now. And do people talk about Mavic Chen as they do about Davros in terms of the impact on the show? Mm, that's right. Lovingly remembered like he is now? Probably not. No, he would have been, say, like the um, the Kraals or something like that. A singular monster and a singular story and people would have moved on. And that's a trademark of the Hinchcliffe era, isn't it? That they've got... They've gone for more generic monsters in the first, you know, 10, 12 years of, this, mm. of the series uh, history. And they've concentrated on a titular character, uh, a single character. So whether it's, uh, as you say, Magnus Greel or, uh, you know, Davros. Harrison Chase. um, You know, characters Mm. like that. Davros sort of fits right into that. Um, A common complaint Mm. about Davros is that he's tended to sideline the Daleks in their subsequent appearances. The stories were, you know, particularly like Revelation of the Daleks, were more focused on him. 
uh, and, and, and his creation sort of became sort of afterthoughts in a sense. Do, do you think that that is a, a valid interpretation? Does it hold any merit anyway? Yeah, I think so. I mean, Revelation is very, um, it's very wordy. Well, it's actually more of a story for Davros than it is for the Sixth Doctor, isn't it? It's a Dr. Light story. Colin Baker didn't realise it was a Dr. Light until he got the script. I think you could do all the subsequent stories that they did with without Davros. Destiny, Resurrection, Revelation, Remembrance. You could still do all those stories without Davros. I tend to think that they... Uh, diminished by his absence Mm. uh, because I think he's such a really strong character and I think that the stories are are, are better for it. And we lose, I think, that... uh, Now, was it in The Stolen Earth where Davros reappears and Sarah... realizes exactly who it is and the look of fear on her face is it justifies bringing him back i think that actually worked really well didn't it that recognition so uh our next suggestion is from uh from twitter from metabilis 2 where our spider friend says uh tom baker leaves and this is what we sort of discussed before isn't it mark he leaves uh at the end of invasion of time and the doctor regenerates into mary tam Tam's casting is uh, seen at the BBC as presaging uh, Margaret Thatcher, who was uh, rising at that time, wasn't she, in, in the political world? In many ways. <laughs> yeah. Tom never marries Lala Ward and comes back for the 20th special. Uh, Graham Williams is heralded now as a visionary, but Tam only lasts two seasons and Doctor Who recast as a male. And there's a lot to unpack in there. But there's a world in which you can see that Baker leaves at the invasion of time. Or even Sharda got finished if Tom Baker was leaving. But yes, absolutely. I mean, as we mentioned before, he might have said, I'll leave all you guys and we'll get somebody else in. We'll let the new producer mm. have a have a, a clean uh, broom, as it were. Whether that would have mm-hmm. been the right time to do a, a female doctor. Late 70s, bit sexist. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to say it. I mean, but I mean, in a world... But, but then in a world, Mark, where... Uh, I think it's Indira Gandhi is, is Prime Minister or has been Prime Minister of India uh, and Margaret Thatcher is you know is about to lead or is leading I can't quite remember when she became leader of the Conservatives That's about 70, 79 I think or was it the election she won 78, 79 Our friend David Kitchen would know exactly the day that she was <laughs> she was elevated and he's probably banging at his table <laughs> now getting very upset But Margaret Thatcher <laughs> was certainly in the news at that time so yeah. look imagine a world in which the BBC is quite happy to uh, stamp uh, their approval all over Mary Tam being cast. What do you... And you've watched uh, Keita Time more recently than me, Mark. In her terms of her Mm. performance, is there enough there to say that she could play uh, a female doctor? Definitely. Again, it comes down to the material she's given. I think they would have had a better handle on writing for a a strong female doctor. I mean, look what they did with um, The Stones of Blood with uh, Beatrix Lehman, you know, like really good performance, really good material. So as long as she had that to work with, which is what a lot of the many issues with the, the latest uh, with Jodie Whittaker and that sort of stuff. But I think mm. it absolutely could work. I mean, let's be honest, she's very easy on the eye. She comes across as smart, intelligent. Yeah, I think it would have worked, actually. My impression of her performance is it's one of sort of haughtiness. She, she, she brings a certain arrogance to the, to the role that, you know, the, the universe is a little bit beneath her. Do, do you think something like that would work or would she have to be, could you start that way and then make her gradually more relatable as she, you know, as she travels further and further? It's that contrasting thing, isn't it? Where Tom Baker is sort of getting towards the silly part now, mm. <laughs> season 15 in particular. So I think having that contrast between having that aloofness and yes, you probably hopefully would have mellowed that as well. Again, it comes down to having the right actor and the mm. right material. And I think 
definitely she would have shone. I, I, I think that's a really good idea. I don't think people would have batted too much of an eyelid in the 70s, would they? Newspaper tabloids like the Sun would have made made hay from from beginning to end with that, you know. But it would have been popular. I mean, they would have, they would have dug up photos for, of her in various states of undress or slinky dresses or costumes or anything like that that would have revealed a bit of skin. Hmm. Um, which, hmm. <laughs> look, we, we live in a world that is 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 hypocritical like that. You, I mean, you, you can be a, a male actor and, and no, nothing like that ever emerges, but as soon as, you know, a female actress is, is, is re- revealed and, you know, we, we see everything about her in a sense. And I think back in the 70s, uh, women were fair game for that sort of uh, for sort of thing, which is, you know, it's never justified in any particular context. But um, it, I, I don't know. I, I think uh, in terms of the tabloids, they would have... They would have made, uh, you know, as I said before, hay about her appearance, about her good looks. Uh, I think they would have, overall, the media probably would have given her a chance. Whether the viewing audience would have done it, you've got a bunch of teenage boys who, you know, screamed mm. blue murder about the deadly assassin. How would they have? Mm. How would they have coped with seeing a woman in the role? All they're doing is writing into little fanzines that are only read by two hundred and three hundred people. They haven't got Twitter then. They haven't got social media. So I suppose mm. that backlash would be a, a lot more muted. And really, the only thing the BBC really need to worry about is the ratings and the approval figures. Yeah, that's true. If they're strong, this is the thing with you know Doctor Who now. It's just basically you know you have uh, social media is an amplification method to get your opinion mm. across, whether it be mm. positive or negative, right? So the more people are angry about something, they think, oh, everybody's angry. No, it's not. It's only three or four people and their sock puppet accounts getting angry about something. So, yeah, you just got to put it into context like that. But um, look, simpler times, and I think uh, I would have been up for that, definitely. And a real contrast to Tom Baker as well, which uh, I think... Um, I think... I, I think if it had happened... I don't think that I don't think the reaction to it would have been overly favourable. But I think if we if it did actually occur and we could look back at it with hindsight, I think mm. that we would applaud uh, what was done. And you know, hopefully the budget concerns could have been ironed out that you know afflicted that particular era, and and the script uh, scripts could have been you know sort of done on time and and uh, so that you know there there wouldn't have been that you know, handicapping the era uh, as it sort of tended to do for, for Williams. Williams sort of suffers from the budget, diminishing budget, the daily diminishing budget by all accounts and uh, and the script challenges that they faced. It'd be interesting to see how Douglas Adams would have approached script editing of those stories if there was a female doctor um, involved. I think he would have made it clever and, hmm. uh, and, and, and you know, amusing and, uh, you know, full of quips and all that sort of thing. I, th- I think he would have really uh, written well for, for a female lead. I agree. Also, he mentions that um, Tom Baker comes back for the 20th anniversary Five Doctors special, which, as much as we all love it, there is a bit of a hole there sometimes. You think about it that... Uh, would have been nice with a Tom Baker uh, sort of uh, feeling, but uh, alas. Tom Baker doesn't does four or five years and not seven. Uh, oh. I think he, he's prepared to come back. There's just that much more distance, and and you know it, it's he wouldn't regard the show with the passage of time as something of a personal plaything, or, or you know hard to go back. I mean it's off you know it's always hard to go back to something that you've done and loved for such a long time. So yeah.
we're going to leave the 70s behind and we're going to blast off into uh, the 80s. And we had a lot of correspondence around this uh, in particular. Richard off the uh, Something Who podcast said, uh, Bidmead stays on for season 19 and follows through with the old man in the young man's body theme and we, that we see in Castrovalve and Frontios. Saywood still writes The Visitation and Earthshock and perhaps takes over for season 20, but reigns back some of the excesses of what will otherwise plague season 22 actually other comments about um Bidmead staying on for season 19 and, and eric saywood sort of not taking on the script editor um role yeah i think it would have been great to see Bidmead do that other season obviously the script issues that they did have in terms of things not working out they wouldn't have had they would have had a, a bit of continuity where they didn't have like three script editors in a year mm-hmm. things like time flight probably would not have made the final cut. Gets to write a visitation and nurse shock, and I'm more than happy with that. But I think some of that, that tone of that season, I think uh, Bidmead definitely had a better handle on the on the Fifth Doctor's character than what the other writers um, ever did, really. Do know that continuity, I think, sometimes with the, with the production team, uh, especially where you've got J&T, who's not... I mean, he's, he's, he's more about the visual appeal of the, of the show, the look, uh, the publicity where you need um, continuity in storytelling uh, from one era to the next just as a just to hand it over you know intact to the next next group of people to come along uh, Bidmead might have nurtured Saywood uh, a bit I think uh, if, if, if Saywood was going to be the designated successor that might itself if he it was nurtured Saywood might have uh, been able to pull back on, on some of the stuff that happened in season 22. Um, if 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 you think that there it was excessive in some of the things that that occurred in that particular year, I like the idea of Bidmead staying on. Uh, I th- I think you still get Castrovalva certainly because he's, he's written it. Uh, you get stuff stuff like Kinder. I think uh, even though it's not particularly scientific, that there's a more of a more of a mystical angle there. I think Bidmead might have might have heightened the scientific aspect of it, but I, I think that still survives. Uh, I think he'd be on board for a. Um, you know the, the the Cyberman story uh, as it as it sort of came out. Would he have uh, wanted Adric to go in that particular way though, uh, as he sort of oversaw his uh, his his, his uh, introduction? I think so. I think it would have been a, a different way for a companion to go. I don't see Bidmead putting up with something like Black Orchid though. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where's the science in that? I don't think that would have got off the planning stage. Fort of Doomsday probably would have been a lot stronger. But, um, but yeah, it would have been definitely interesting. And and we sort of follow on with that with. Uh, a comment that Brendan Jones made what if the fifth doctor had been accompanied by more people who liked him <laughs> <laughs> such as Todd Jane Hamden Will Chandler Mariner the Brigadier Mr. Range and Norna <laughs> Murgrave Kari the list goes on what if the fifth doctor did not travel with uh, Tegan Turlow and the rest of the uh, teenagers I think having four people in the TARDIS is a mistake uh, you, you could sort of get away with it over the course of a four part you know story but even there, they sort of have to hand wave and have people absent for certain portions of it, like Nissa was in Kinder. Um, I think uh, I think he works best with one, uh, at most two. I think he works. I think he works well, with, really well with Turlow, for instance. Um, but you know, I, I, there's there's scope there for not necessarily uh, you know changing up the companions that he has, but just changing the numbers. I mean, the Doctor and Tegan works because there's a real contrast there. I think the Doctor and Turlow works. And as everyone has said, there's there's a real sort of, uh, I suppose, bond or the feel of a bond between Davison and um, and Nicola Bryant, even though they sort of were only together for two stories. So I think it's the number and not necessarily the companions that can negatively affect your viewing uh, enjoyment of some of those, you know, especially those first 
that first year uh, that he did. Brendan sort of makes a point of uh, calling out Todd and, and James Hamden from The Awakening and Kinder. I think he's absolutely right. I think Dave, I think the Davison Doctor would have worked. In fact, it does work better when it's only those two characters together mm. in those respective stories going through the motions, as it were. And they do spark off each other a lot differently than what the other companions uh, got. So I would have actually been happy in, say, for example, Dr. Todd joining after Kinder. Uh, an Earthshock maybe blowing up this uh, <laughs> trick and getting rid of them all and then just having uh, Todd to sort of pick up the pieces and even in the awakening. You know, Jane Hamden works really well with, with the Fifth Doctor as well. So I think, actually, in retrospect, the Fifth Doctor would have worked a lot better with an older companion, just like Colin Baker on the audio worked well with uh, Evelyn Smythe, that yes. older companion as well. So it would have been a really good contrast. So what you're saying in Earthshock, uh, uh, Tegan could have been gunned down by Cyberman in Part 2, Nissa torn apart by Cyberman in Part 3, and Edric blown up by Cyberman in Part 4. Is that what you're really wishing for, Mark? No, just blow the ball up <laughs> in Part 4. <laughs> Heading towards the Earth with no hope, or just clinging onto each other. And Davison going, oh, do I have to save them? And then that's it. And then him and uh, Dr. Todd, off they go on their merry way to Amsterdam. True. Got to merge these ones together because they're sort of running along similar lines. So Manny Sharad said, what if uh, JNT had left at the end of season 20 like he wanted to? And then Metabilis 2 again pipes up with uh, JNT leaves after the 20th anniversary. David Maloney becomes the producer, fires Sayward and hires Boucher, a script editor. The story quality greatly improves and, and Doctor Who gets a new lease on life from the BBC. Well, I think we could all agree that if, if J&T had left at the end of the Five Doctors, um, it would have been his crowning achievement. I agree. As much as I love season 21, I think if he had left then, very similar to what happened with Hinchcliffe at the top of his game. I mean, the season 20 sort of is patchy, but I think, you know, in retrospect, he would have been, you know, revered and not reviled mm. in, in some quarters. I'm not quite sure about revered, Mark, but I, I think appreciated uh, would be my term for, for, for J&T. Highly appreciated? <laughs> You can, you can. I'll grant you highly appreciated. I'll just go with appreciated. Fair enough. Do you think that Maloney and Boucher bring a, a Black Seven vibe, a more gritty uh, tone? Does, does the series need a more gritty tone? Is that Doctor Who? I think they would have brought a structure to the show. You obviously have a producer and script editor in sync, which obviously wasn't happening with J and T and Saywood. Maloney yep. has credibility. You know, uh, he knows what he's doing from both a director and producer perspective. It's probably a lot stronger in those areas, mm-hmm. especially with the script as well. You've got Boucher, who really is a, a great script editor. He can plan a story arc, unlike Sayward didn't do. Mm. I think absolutely right. I think the story quality and the consistency would have definitely improved. And Baloney would have got the directors in that probably worked on the show before who understood it, where JNT was very reluctant to. But also, yes. um, you know, Boucher would have probably gone got some of the old old hands in as well to sort of help out but also he would have had the time to nurture some of the newer talents as well and not to sort of leave mm-hmm. them on the side of the road trying to fend for themselves so I think it's a great idea I might just yeah. travel back in time and sort that out now I agree I, I think that Maloney brings credibility Boucher brings writing chops I think Colin Baker doesn't get cast I think because Maloney is uh, a, a known quantity with experience and success there's hesitation at the you know the, the sixth floor of the BBC to chop Doctor Who, especially where it on the screen it looks more credible. It has more credible and stronger scripts. I think through the mid part of the 80s, 
consistently good scripting. Um, I still think you've got the budget issues that plagues the show, uh, you know, right up until the end of its run in the eighties. But I think that you there's there's a real opportunity there for the series to get a second wind of you know mm. of of momentum in terms of you know the storytelling and in popularity. And even if they stay for say three years, which I would you would regard as sort of standard three or four years, there's the there's the real possibility that the show actually you know makes it into the nineties um, and. Tele fantasy in the '90s gains a lot of credibility. Uh, you know, TNG goes out on the high in the early '90s. Uh, the X Files comes along and is, is is a phenomenon. And I think you know you could see the BBC wanting to have a piece of that pie. Uh, Doctor Who's a known quantity. It's got markets around the world. It still sells. You know, the VHS market and, and soon the burgeoning DVD market. There's a real chance to possibly that the, these two guys hand the series off into the 1990s to a you know to a new production team really strong geez let's go back in time mark as you said <laughs> and david maloney would have cast uh paul darrow as the sixth doctor the petition starts oh, now absolutely can you imagine can that you, oh, can you my imagine? oh my god <laughs> oh my god it'll be fantastic oh, mind blown mark mind blown i can't paul darrow Ooh. in that coat can you imagine it <gasps> But not even in that coat. I mean, in a decent costume. No, yeah, you know, yeah. with with a, with a really good performance. Oh my, oh my goodness! I'm getting all shivery just thinking about it. <laughs> Can someone fan me? I'm beginning to have a heating here. <laughs> this might bring us back to reality a bit. Uh, Scott Michael has uh, suggested that Peter Davison staying on for another season. Would the cancellation still have occurred? My view is yes, because as soon as uh, Michael Grade saw the Merca sort of waddling its green ass all over BBC One, it was gone. When Davison came out a few years ago, I actually asked him that question. I said, do you think it would have been cancelled if, if you had stayed? And he said, yes, it wouldn't have mattered if I'd stayed or gone. It would have been cancelled. He was very lucky he got out when he did. But um, yeah, it was always a target as soon as Michael Gray got in Powell and everything like that so I don't think anything could have saved it really they had their plans in place I agree I, th- I think uh, absent changes to anything else if, if Davison stays on the show still gets cancelled I mean you don't necessarily detect it these days it is 30 years on but you, it must still rankle Colin Baker that you know his name is associated with the show's you know well originally a cancellation within the BBC backtrack that there's still I think would be a part of him as as anyone would feel that you know they're they're unfairly tainted with that sort of that that uh that mark that on their watch while they were the lead the show was basically cancelled for a bit by the bbc it's uh I don't know. It's, it, it, it would hurt. It would hurt me even thirty or odd years later. Even though Baker was not nothing to do with it, really. I mean, the, the show's cards were marked. Um, you know, even before I think he was cast. But I think that the the production decisions just sort of gave extra impetus for that cancellation to happen. Yes. And you do feel sorry for Colin Baker because you know, effectively, the show was cancelled. Then it was brought back. And then it was sacked. So really, if you're looking at it from a, view, a purely viewing perspective, it was, he was a failure. I would push back slightly against that, Mark. I think the ratings that Baker got in his first year mm. were reasonable. I thought I thought they were pretty good. I don't I don't know that there's. I don't think you can say. I'm not. I'm not criticizing you or anything like that. I'm just saying I wouldn't use the word failure. I I, I think that no matter what they they did, uh, the the upper echelons of the BBC had decided or were deciding in the process of that we're going to start reallocating budgets uh, to elsewhere. And we've got this 20-odd-year-old show that's been you know, on the books for years and years and years. What is it adding that's new to, to, our, to our scheduling and to our output? You know, can we justify having this when they're, you know, the viewing audience has, has, has moved on and there's, there's expectations that you know, BBC drama 
uh, provides you know better bang for your buck. I mean, this is in an era where something like you know Edge of Darkness has been put out by the BBC, BBC Two, and then BBC One after it became a still a you know a standout success. You watch Edge of Darkness, and then you watch Doctor Who, and you go, "Are these being produced by the same, the same television station?" Uh, and threads. Oh well, yeah. yeah. And look, and I know people will t- push back and say, "Well, Doctor Who, you know, is is a children's drama," but uh, I'm not hundred. I've never been hundred percent, you know, on that. I, I think Doctor Who was uh, out of time, out of place. Uh, and no matter who was in charge, you could have had Laurence Olivier in the, you know, leading the, leading the show. Doesn't matter about the caliber of the, the the lead. It was, I think, its time was up, really, and it it, it lingered on, uh, happily so, because there were a lot of good stories that came, you know, after eighty five. But if Davo had hung around, he would have got the chop. But the Six Doctor era reminds me of like uh, Mick Malthouse joining Carlton as a coach. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very local comment. <laughs> People in your in your local in your locale, think about a championship head or coach of a particular team that you follow, and then putting him into a really crap uh, <laughs> uh, football team or, or whatever, or baseball yeah. team or whatever, and and then just think about it, and then having no yeah. success whatsoever. Exactly. So Alex Ferguson joining, say, a Division Fifteen football team, it just not, <laughs> it just won't work. Yes, North Americans, you know what to do with that. So we've had a lot, a lot of comments around the the Colin Baker sort of years and lots of what if scenarios uh we'll just do a special i think on that there should have been another way hey that's a beautiful title yeah we're going to call it that that we're going to go with that so we'll schedule that because there's a lot of interesting theories on that but um yeah we might just skip ahead to um i suppose the end of the 80s where um david kitchen sort of poses these two um questions to us the first one is what if the plan season 27 had gone ahead I think that given it would have contained that current production team with those leads, uh, I think it. Uh, I think it would have worked. I think they probably still would have, you know, cancelled the show. But I, I think uh, Sylvester McCoy and Sophie Aldred deserved one extra year after the, you know, the false start that was uh, McCoy's first season, which was, you know, a train wreck from beginning to end. Uh, I think that uh, there had been stories that pointed you know i think there have been a lot of mature stories that had come in the two seasons afterwards uh that were building to something um i'm not saying we you know we missed out uh by not having season 27 but i think i think it would have been fair to allow them to you know uh, go out on a bit of a high i think um I was, you know, happy with the, the the sort of ending that was tacked onto the end of the survival, but I, I think that McCoy and, and Aldred deserve that one last year to really build on what they'd done in the previous two years and and go out on a high. I think, you know, that there would have been an opportunity for a regeneration there and for Sophie Aldred to go out, uh, you know, um, fulfilling the sort of the character's potential. And from whatever of the stories, um, I think there was a lot of really strong stories there um, that we sort of missed out on we've got sort of in book form or audio form now did DWM do some sort of what if season 27 went ahead issue I think and, uh, and I think the outlines that, that um, Cartmel put, put forward for those were actually quite interesting but also uh, obviously television is a different medium to audio so it would have been a different whole spin on it the way McCoy was going to leave was instead of he was going to regenerate to save his mind as opposed to save his body was uh, quite an interesting 
um, yes. uh, I suppose, take on it. If they were given the opportunity, I think it would have definitely ended on a high. Whether anybody was, would have watched it, though, um, I don't know. <laughs> well, well you'd hope that the BBC say, well, look, it, there is a, up, definitely an ups, upswing in quality here. Let's give it another time slot and give it another go. Its cards were, unfortunately, again, marked, and um, that's how it played out. I think the majority of the McCoy era is marked by uh, different storytelling, uh, interesting story storytelling. You know, halfway decent performance from McCoy himself. Oh. Uh, I think Aldred is an appealing character uh, as 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 uh, as Ace. I think I think that the, and, and Andrew Cartmel. Um, you know what? I, I I think it's a pity that Cartmel didn't stay or wasn't able to stay longer in the industry uh, after you know the production team the production was halted on Doctor Who. I think he had a lot to mm. offer television, and I think it's a bit of a pity that. I, I, look, I can't remember what else he did in television. If he did anything else in television, I, but I think it's a pity that you know, for a fellow so young at the time, um, didn't didn't stay within the industry, and that that might have been a personal choice, or you know, life choices take you in you know different places than some people might expect. But I, I think season twenty seven would have been a really good, strong, on the evidence of the previous two series uh, seasons, would have been a really strong uh, story, uh, set of storylines. And it's just a pity that, from my perspective, that, that we, we didn't get it. I mean, that you referenced that uh, DWM article which talked about what season 27 could have been, and I, I was you know really enraptured by what I read. So I, I think it would have been very good. I don't think it would have been any worse than what had been the previous two years. Um, so you know, and I think they might have you know stepped up and, and, and improved again. And that's the and that's the story of the McCoy era, one of imp- constant improvement throughout the three years. It would have been a nice coda to sort of finish it off. But I mean, the storytelling that was happening was sort of aligning to what was going to happen in the 90s anyway. So it's a shame, isn't yeah. it, really? And then the second one was, uh, what if the Dark Dimension had been made in 1993? I think it would have come back in a blaze of publicity. I think that it would have uh, rated very well, a la the, uh, the TV movie three years later. I think that with the right amount of publicity and uh, money in terms of you know the, the way the production looks, I think it would have been, you know, a real standout in the schedule. I think they probably needed, to, you know, having read the script myself, they probably needed to beef up uh, the, you know, the appearances of Pertwee and Davison and uh, and Colin Baker. But I think it would have been uh, really a really inter- really interesting, mm. a really interesting view. I mean, we saw what Doctor Who looked like in the hands of North Americans. It would have been interesting to see what Doctor Who would have looked like in the hands of, you know, British. A British production team in the early '90s. I mean, you know, the, the whole feel of the '90s is completely different to the feel of the '80s. Uh, and I think by 1993, the look of the production, the vibe of the production, uh, how it's made, is completely different to what we get. You know, in '89. What do you think, Mark? Because originally it was going to be a direct-to-video production, and the budget, I believe, was like a hundred thousand pounds. Right now, that's true. There's a risk there. If yes. it'd been made with a hundred thousand pounds, it would be a slightly better-looking version of a BBV production. Now, if the BBC actually got its shit together. Yes. and said there was an anniversary coming up, okay, let's throw everything at it, money was an issue, then you know, actively look at co-productions with, say, the ABC, like they did with The Five Doctors, mm. I think it could have worked. Could you have ramped it up over two nights, say, Mark, you know, going out on 
you know, the, the, the day before the anniversary and then culminating on the anniversary itself in 1993. Oh, yeah. Actually, that's a great idea, yeah. So sort of a mini-series event like we used to. Remember, we used to have, like, Bangkok Hilton and all those things in the 80s. All those Jeffrey Archer novels that were sort of made into mini-series in the 1980s and 90s. Prestige drama, Mark. Over two nights, yeah, Doctor Who with money. And Graham Harper's back and Rick Mayer was supposed to be as the villain. I think it would have yeah. been uh, it would have been good. I know, I've sort of read, sort of glanced over some of the script. Lots of rework, I think, in my opinion. Opinion. Oh yes. I don't think even Big Finish have done anything with it either, have they? Like we keep talking about these lost stories, but I mean, there's one definite they could make. Yeah. I wonder why they haven't done that. Maybe they can't get permission. So Rigglesford, maybe the BBC doesn't want to have a bar of it. Who knows? Yeah, because like Philip Siegel apparently put the stops on that. Really, in retrospect, yeah. he should have just said, as long as it was done properly, it would have lent into an, you know the American yeah. co-production. But I think he was more along the lines of it's going to be like a BBV amped up production then yes the the perception that it's just cheap and shoddy will be amplified and we'll get no way of getting my tv show yeah. on here so look it could have been certainly a lot better than uh, dimensions in time anything's better than dimensions in time mark we might just do one or two new series ones before we go Stephen shinder says what if the 10th doctor actually had the guts to regenerate into a new face at journey's end that's an amazing lost opportunity there i mean from a cliffhanger perspective it was it would have been the ultimate coup really to have him going without anybody knowing and then have the new face replace him. But uh, alas, it was just a um, bit of a stunt, really. Yeah, I think that was a bit of a hallmark of uh, uh, Russell T Davies' era. There's a bit of the the stunt element. He was a showman, I think, uh, a more successful showman than, say, J&T yeah. was. But uh, yeah. there, was that, there's that, there was always that element about uh, Davies that he was... Um, and you can understand why, because you, you, you wanted to keep the show in the forefront of the public's mind um, as much as possible. So, yeah. Yeah. It would have been interesting having you know Matt Smith come on board playing that same episode with uh, Tennant as a human doctor. And then... Well, that would have been interesting, mm. yes. And what's the next one you got there, Mark? Oscar Groucho says, what if Patterson Joseph had been given the role he was promised? <laughs> Is that the case? He was offered it and he said no or said yes and then said no? There's been many theories around this, but what I thought it was that he was offered it and then he, the BBC reneged it. Ooh. Probably won't hear anything about it until the NDA's clear in 2070. <laughs> what if he'd been given the role as promised? I think he would have been perfectly fine as the Doctor. I thought he would have brought something new to the role. I think that as the uh, misogynists have come out of the woodwork with regards to Jodie Whittaker, the, the, the out-and-out racists would have come out of the woodwork and attacked him for his uh, ethnicity. Uh, which is double, just as equally as disgusting as, as what's going on with Whitaker at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that unlike Whitaker, he would have been given, uh, you know, by the majority of fans, I think he would have been given um, uh, more opportunity to prove himself in the role. Yeah, I, I think he would have been perfectly fine. And me saying perfectly fine is not damning with faint praise. I think he would have just been would have been just as good as Matt Smith. Uh, and I think he would have brought a really interesting and different performance to the role. You mentioned before, though, the reception that Jodie Whittaker's getting at the moment. Admittedly, a subset of fans, yes. Are you looking at Twitter or what? I don't have a Facebook account. Uh, I'm not on. Uh, I'm only on Twitter in terms of social media. Look, they're having a go at Chibnall for his storytelling abilities, and they're having a go at Whittaker, and they're saying that she's not up to the up to the role. I, I think, in, in part, there's there's a truth. Well, I think there's a bit of misogyny going on with that, Mark. To be honest. I, I really, I really do. Uh, they would turn around and say that I'm talking shit, um, which is you know you can say whatever you want. But I think I think there's misogynists out there who are who are fueling some of this. I I think in the hands of a script editor like say Moffat or you know Cartmill or whatever, I think they could make more of the role. I think I think she's a little bit too generic. I don't know 
what Whitaker is bringing that's different to the role that you know someone else has brought. It's a more basic performance. It's a template performance, isn't it? Really, it's you've seen it before. Yeah, I don't know that she's really stamped her personality on the role. I mean, if if excitable and 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 a sort of a gee whiz attitude to the world is 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 your imprint on the role, then I don't know that you're, you're giving yourself the best opportunity. Mm. I th- I think I think towards the latter part of her second season, there was more of a a chance for a melancholy in terms of you know her performance, um, and I think I sort of got a bit more out of it from that perspective. But she needs to push herself, uh, and she needs to be presented with scripts that give her that opportunity to push herself. Otherwise, I I think that there's a risk of you know maybe two lost or th- even three lost years of of performance. I think in terms of ratings, the show is where it is simply because it's been on air for fifteen years. I don't think that if you had a male lead in the role, the ratings would be any better than what they currently are. The market, the television market is changing. It's still changing and it will continue to change. And terrestrial broadcast uh, versus, you know, the multiplicity of options that are, uh, you know, out there for people. I mean, my kids do not watch, you know, domestic broadcasts anymore. They are on TikTok uh, for as long as it lasts in this country. (laughs) They are on Instagram. They are watching stuff on YouTube. They do not watch television as as we used to do it 30 years ago when we were kids, Mark. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So you you don't have the bums on seats in the lounge rooms around the UK that you used to. And it's the same for Doctor Who. It's the same for every every other drama uh, in in uh, in the UK. I was look. I've been like I said at the start of this. I've been watching NYPD Blue, and in America in the nineties, it was getting 22, 23 million viewers uh, per episode. Okay, you you would not get that now, even if you were showing exactly the same, you know, quality of stories. You because the, the people have got other opportunities to watch. You know, you can see shows like Line of Duty in the UK, uh, which is is this fantastic, uh, fantastic drama, but it does not get the audience that it would have got in the 80s and 90s. Mm. It would have got 10, 15, 20, you know, 25 million. Uh, but it doesn't do that because television is splintered. You know, the viewing experience is, it's everywhere. So much good TV yes. to watch. And um, if you sort of miss an episode or two, you just sort of don't really sort of go back to it. Look, the show and its current, I don't, I don't agree with it either, right? But at the end of the day, I'm not getting on panels and and getting, I suppose, upset to the point where you sort of listen to some of these people and they are coming across as, you know, misogynists and the tone of the conversation is terrible. And it's just being, as I said, amplified on social media. And it's actually antagonising on both sides now. I sound like Trump, but there's fine people on both sides. But there's that they're called Jody bots are antagonising the not my doctors and going, this is so silly. <laughs> There's better things to do with your life, people. I don't know. Yeah, I lo- look, I agree with you, Mark. I agree. It's just... It's not worth getting upset about, in other words, you know, with whatever's going on in the world. There's, there's other things to worry about. If you don't like it, don't watch it. Yep. And we might finish off with this last one, which I think we've discussed a number of times, but we'll give it one more spin. Bill P. Godfrey, who says, what if Eccleston agreed to participate in the 50th anniversary special? I would have punched the air instead of punching myself in the face. <laughs> <laughs> as much as uh, Hurt is a fantastic actor, actor and he gives a pretty good performance in the day of the doctor i think that having eccleston back would have been would have done a couple of things it would have been a a fine acknowledgement that he and his performance in his his sole year on the show uh propelled the the new series uh to the stratosphere in terms of ratings and public uh you know popularity and it would have been just reward you know and a recognition that uh you know he, he had done that and to come back I think would have been, you know, perfectly fine, and 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 a, a reward for him, 
because I think he's had it, you know, really hard. I think mentally, mm. you know, in terms of his mental well-being, over the last well, it seems like a long while. Um, I, I, I think uh, it would have been great for him uh, if he'd agreed, and I think it would have been great for for the audience. Um, who really wouldn't be there if it wasn't for him. Christopher Eccleston's performance in that year um, solidified uh, and presented to the you know to the general public that this was a serious undertaking and not just a kids show. And he, he made it. Uh, I think he made it popular again. I think it's down to you know as more so for I think Christopher Eccleston that he made the show popular again. And the other thing I was going to say was that uh, I think his presence in the in, in the day of the Doctor would have strengthened it immeasurably. I think. Uh, Moffat made the best with the circumstances that he had, but I don't think you know the idea of the War Doctor flies. It doesn't fly with me. You either get Eccleston back, or you get McGann back, or both. Hopefully, look, it would have been nice to have seen him. Obviously, um, I suppose from a production point of view, would it have presented challenges? Because as you said, um, Mr. Eccleston, he certainly has his views, and whether. Um, I suppose the, the backstage sort of working dynamic between Matt Smith and David Turner, who are quite light-hearted sort of chaps, um, mm. would have, I suppose, made the production easy. I don't know. But look, they're all professionals. I'm sure they would have got on with it and, and Eccleston would have done the right thing by the program. Yes, it would have been lovely to see. But um, if, if Eccleston didn't do it, we didn't want to do it, we keep saying it should have been McGann. It just didn't make sense to have John Hurt. And John Hurt, to me, didn't do anything with it. He just, it just came across as a slightly grumpier... Um, Peter Cushing, to be honest. And that's not to say he's a, not a great actor, because he's a fantastic actor. He just didn't do much with it for me. Mm. So, Sailor V, unfortunately. Bring back McGann, Mark. I don't understand why the BBC doesn't, you know, go out into the marketplace and say, dear production teams, you can you can do your own version of Doctor Who, but you must have Paul McGann, and, you know, stream it, whatever. I don't understand... <laughs> I don't understand why that's not done. It doesn't make sense because you've got Picard going the same time you've got Discovery going. Yes. It's multi-platform, yes. you know, multi-whatever. Just bloody go ahead with it. Don't be stuck and so we've got to be, this is the current Doctor. It doesn't have to be. Why is it like that? Uh, is the current production team worried that they'd be overshadowed? I suppose so, because they would be overshadowed. Yeah, they would be. It also depends on whether McGann wants to come back for one, two, three years and do it. But, you know, we, we're in this ridiculous situation where they're, they're unable, the production team are unable to do a series per year. I don't understand, I do not understand in this day and age how that's possible, but it is. You know, it, obviously, I'm not privy to how television is made this year or the, or the, or the pressures that brought to bear. But, you know, if, if one production team is struggling to put one series out per year, then give another production team the opportunity, because Doctor Who is a big, you know, it's a big platform, it's a, it's a broad canvas. There's, you know, you can bring back McGann, you can do that sort of thing. One-off specials, ongoing streaming, or whatever. Stick him in at the beginning of the time war. People would lap it up. It would sell its pants off around the world. But absolutely. But you know, um, look, what are we, Rob? We're just two guys behind a microphone. Correct. Humble podcasters. Extremely humble podcasters. Well, not really humble. I mean, raging egomaniacs. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> we're angry. We're locked up. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. We'll revisit uh, the other topics, the other uh, suggestions that we haven't touched on uh, in future podcasts, as you mentioned at the start, Mark. So thank you to everyone who uh, brought forward their ideas. Uh, we certainly, uh, the ones that we haven't uh, touched on uh, in this episode, we'll, we'll, we'll visit those in future episodes, absolutely. Especially the uh, trial. What did you call it? The, uh... There should have been another way. <laughs> we'll try and get a couple of episodes out over the next couple of months. Hey, Rob, give us something to do. Definitely. Definitely. 
before we go, let's uh, keep the alternate universe uh, thread happening. Rob, want to talk to us about your journey into an alternate universe with your latest book? Yes, Mark. Yes, as some of you may know, uh, I wrote. Uh, I've been writing for Candy Jar for a few years. Candy Jar Press in the UK. They have got the license for the Lethbridge Stewart. Uh, character and uh, and all the sort of associated characters um and uh this year uh, in the last couple of months they've released my latest novel which is i alistair which is set in the inferno universe uh that was shown in the story of the same name in pertwee's uh or yeah, pertwee's first year uh so yeah it's it's set uh, it, it 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 has Lethbridge Stewart, Alistair Lethbridge Stewart, but it uh, is a uh, a military man in a fascist uh, dictatorship in the Republic of Britain, um, and it's set uh, just before the events of Inferno and uh, depicts uh, an adventure that uh, this uh, wrong version of the Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart uh, uh, has. And I had a great great deal of uh, fun writing it. Um, like I said, it's it's set in that universe. It's an alternate reality, uh, like all good alternate realities. The worst things uh, happen, which makes a, makes for, for a lot of fun writing. You get, you get a character who's more an anti-hero than a hero. So, uh, yeah, I really enjoyed doing it, and um, I think it, it's got some good feedback. How many times did you watch Inferno to get a handle on the alternate universe? There were a couple of books that I had to read for Candy uh, that had been put out earlier by Candy Jar so that I could get a handle on the, on the setting because the, the Schizoid Earth... Uh, which is an earlier book by David McKinty, uh, features characters from that. So I had to read that. I, I watched uh, Inferno a couple of times, specifically, you know, the alternate uh, reality, uh, mainly for the visual signifiers. So I had to keep on reminding myself which eye uh, uh, of the brigadier uh, wears the eye patch on uh, and whether, the, you know, little things like, you know, does the scar that he has on his face extend above the patch and below the patch? Yes, it does. Uh, stuff like the 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 the, uh, the poster, the Unity is Strength poster. Mm. All throughout the book, initially I was writing Unity and Strength, but uh, you know, looking back at the episode, it's actually Unity is Strength. Yeah. I mean, visual stuff like that, the the, the look of the badges, um, the, the what, what people, the, sort of the uniforms that people were, were, were wearing. Uh, but yeah, I did watch it, and I was really struck by how strong Inferno is, especially in that uh, the cliffhanger to, to, to episode six, where basically it all goes to hell. And I got a I got a real threads vibe just looking at some of the imagery at, at the end of that episode. It was like, just talk us through the process for this. So uh, the uh, editor of the range is Andy Frankham Allen, who who has written for the range extensively, and he's also been writing. You know, his his he was writing Doctor Who fiction uh, in the early two thousands. From memory, I remember seeing a website that he had. Uh, where there was the, the you know his version or a continuation of Doctor Who, which was you know uh, really good, good to read. Um, so how did I get the commission? I suppose uh, I proved myself reliable in doing Rise of the Dominator, which is my first uh, novel. Uh, so he asked me to come back. Um, look, in terms of the process, uh, obviously with this is effective. This is tie-in fiction, so it's it's no different to you know writing in sort of uh, the Pathfinder universe for for, for, for role playing or. Call of Cthulhu or, or anything like that, you know, um, TV tie-in is something. It could be something like you know Black Seven or Doctor Who. Even you've got a world that you have to sort of work within. Um, so you can't sort of start killing off major characters <laughs> willy-nilly. That has, obviously has to be approved. So, look, basically, uh, Andy asked for a. He gave me some ideas about you know the, the, certainly the setting was his idea. You know, write a story in this particular setting, and then just come back to me with some a plot outline. So you know, I bashed bashed out a plot outline uh, over the course of a, a week or two and, and submitted it. What what I tend to find is that my plot outlines 
uh, don't necessarily eventuate uh, in their entirety. So there was a couple of uh, elements that were in the plot outline that didn't actually make it into the book. Ideally, I'd like to have the plot, you know, from beginning to end and stick with that. But sometimes you tend to go off the rails and then have to come back. So I managed, I, I, I sort of did that. And so a couple of elements uh, are missing, but that's fine. I mean, the story is, is as strong as it would have been if they'd been retained. Uh, in terms of the actual writing, I, I remember telling one of my daughters that uh, my plan was to do, you know, if I do X amount of words per day, I'll have it done by Christmas. Um, that didn't eventuate uh, with a full, with, with a full, as as you no doubt copped in the emails that I sent to you, Mark, mm. about, uh, you know, it, it when you have a full time job and uh, a busy family life, mm. and you're also you've also decided to sell your house uh, uh, whilst buying another house and then moving, you, all that tends to go out the window. So I didn't really get started until sort of later in last year. And it, it, things got derailed during December and January, and it was only at the end of January that I picked up the pace. Um, and it really, it is all it is with writing is like any other writer would say: it's just sit down and punch out the words. Mm. And you know, so I was I was trying to average a couple of thousand words uh, a day to get myself back on track because I had fallen behind. And in the end, I did ask for a couple of extra weeks past the, the agreed deadline. And you know, I finished it, uh, and I, I went through two, three, four drafts of just going through it. Uh, and just, you know, initially my first draft or first edit is to pick up misspellings, uh, poor sentence structure, that sort of thing. You know, the, that, that comma's in the wrong place. Should that be a comma, you know? Uh, and then what I do is always, because I hate working off a screen, is I print it up as I went off to office works and print it up, you know, 120 page <laughs> manuscripted. And, and it just went through it physically. And then because uh, there was a, a rejig of the schedule, um, Andy came back to me and said look uh, we need to move your book forward can I have can I have uh, the complete edit in three days and I had gotten three quarters of the way through my hand edit of the manuscripts so it was finish that off in a day or a day and a half uh, effectively from memory and then spend all of one night like it till three in the morning re-inputting those hand edits back into the actual, you know, the Word document. So uh, I emailed it off uh, like three in the morning to, to Andy and uh, he was happy with it. I mean, he offered some suggestions uh, to fix it up and there was one major element that I had to sort of, you know, fix. And it came out, you know, it was, it was out within about six weeks from there. It was, it was all typeset up and, and ready to go. So a last minute experience in a number of ways. But I'm, I'm look, you hope that when you're doing these sort of things that you improve from, from, from project to project, and I think that whilst I really like Rise of the Dominator, I think I, Alistair, is a, is a better book. I think the the setting is really good. I mean, I've always been a fan. I've always read a lot of sort of science fiction. I've always been a fan of the alternate universe or alternate reality where one thing changes and then, you know, if Earth, human history has changed. I mean, if, if anyone's ever read the S.M. Sterling Draker books uh, or anything by Harry Turtledove, uh, that's the sort of thing that I was sort of aiming for. I mean... The Inferno universe is a dark dystopian world, but you 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 can't in this particular you know because of the audience that you got you, you can't go too far in, in in depicting sort of dark themes or elements like that, um, which is fine. I'm, I'm happy to live with that. But I, look, I had a lot of fun writing it, and I'm really pleased with how it's turned out. And as I've said, it's got some really good feedback. Uh, and I hope that uh, you know if you go visit the Candy Jar. Uh, website uh, you can order directly at the moment only from from them uh, it's always good to support uh, a small press as they are it's not available as at this stage anyway 
uh, from say the book depository or, or Amazon, but I'm sure in due course it will be. But uh, yeah, I'd, I'd really like people to give it a go and just give me some direct feedback whether they think it's good or think that it's crap. But uh, I, I really enjoyed writing it and uh, I hope to get another commission uh, sometime in the future. You got another one planned? All I can say is, Mark, stay tuned. I'll tell you, universe stuff's always been fascinating, isn't it, really? Yeah. Whether it's the Germans won the war, we called this podcast a doable barkers. Every decision has uh, repercussions, doesn't it, Rob? Exactly. I mean, you know, you, with this, you sort of... Because the, the turning point here is, you know, the the revolution that occurs in the in the 40s, as the, the, the story Inferno in, uh, says outright. So you've got a republic run by the, the, who, the, the a character that we call the leader, um, and you've got Alistair, you know, you've got Lutheran Stewart there, who in this story is a column leader, not a colonel. Uh, that's our sort of our invention for the rank. Um, and it's it's the lead up to, you know, Inferno, but it doesn't, it hints at Inferno, but it doesn't deal directly with Inferno. It's more a action, adventure, conspiracy, thriller, with a bit of, you know, perhaps aliens involved and that sort of thing. So, yeah, it, it, look, in science fiction, the alternate uh, history books have a long and rich history um, and I, you know, I've read them. I've read them avidly for many, many years. And um, the Alistair Lethbridge Stewart character in this book is not an appealing character, and he's in no way a hero because he represents the worst instincts of a of a despotic regime. But the way I've built the character, way the way I've sort of, you know, his 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 personal history explains a lot of what he is there's a sadness to the character there but there's also the fact that he's willing to uh, summarily execute uh, or arrest or you know threaten to torture characters uh, gives you a sense that um, this is not a, not someone that you aspire to like put it that way be back in a couple of weeks hopefully um, whenever you are in the world stay safe and we'll speak again soon we certainly will thank you very much for listening You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.